This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Thanks for joining us today for this Knowledge at Wharton podcast. I'm Steve Sharetta, Senior Managing Editor here at Knowledge at Wharton. And today we welcome back Benjamin Keyes. He's a professor of real estate here at Wharton. And we're going to look at one of his new papers titled Eyes Wide Shut, The Moral Hazard of Mortgage Insurers During the Housing Boom. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's really good to see you again. Now, your paper takes a, I think, fascinating look at mortgage lending practices, specifically mortgage insurance practices, which not many people focus on, uh, in the lead up to the financial crisis and the utter collapse of the real estate bubble back then. Uh, Looking at mortgage insurance practices uh, is, I'm judging by your paper, a bit of a proxy for measuring the risk of default for mortgage loans. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the mortgage insurance industry is really exposed to mortgage losses. They're in a first loss position if uh, there's a downturn and there is a foreclosure wave. And so they're really, uh, the volume of business that they're doing is is right on the edge of uh, assessing how much risk there is in the system. So in effect, you found in your paper that while insurance or insurers are, are uh, meant to check on risky behavior by, by the companies actually issuing the loans, there's supposed to be a check on that. Uh, the private mortgage insurance companies actually took on greater risks without charging higher premiums, which would be sort of, you know, standard business practice, you would think. Uh, and, and so, uh, so this, is all, this is all leading to, uh, all tied rather, to uh, lending guarantees by uh, Freddie and Fannie, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and it's all wrapped up in a huge moral hazard, as the title of your paper suggests. And I, I thought maybe the quick place to start would be just give us a, a refresher on moral hazard just for, so listeners and readers can, can be clear on what, what that means in this context. Yeah, absolutely. The idea here is that there is a group uh, or a party that's taking on risks uh, that is not necessarily uh, being compensated for those risks or being exposed to additional risk taking. So uh, in this context, uh, and it's kind of a complicated context, and it's a little bit messy, but Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are these enormous players in the mortgage market. They are um, federally uh, guaranteed, and at the moment they're in conservatorship. Uh, but prior to the crisis, they were sort of a public-private um, amalgamation. <laughs> so they were uh, essentially you know, private in the sense that they had shareholders, um, and they were run sort of like a private company, but at the same time, they had a, a public guarantee that was really implicit, this too-big-to-fail guarantee that basically investors knew at the end of the day uh, the government would step in and, and, and insure them. Uh, and one of the ways in which the, there was a, a layer of protection built into the system, or it was perceived to be protection, was a, a private mortgage insurance requirement. And what this was intended to do was to bring in private capital into the mortgage market in ways that it might not otherwise have been there. And for any loans that Fannie and Freddie wanted to make uh, and guarantee that had small down payments, so when people are putting down less than a 20% down payment, they were actually required uh, in their charter to attach a private mortgage insurance policy to it. And so the issue here is the sort of risk-taking that these mortgage insurers took. And these were private firms with uh, exposure of first dollar losses. And they were really set up, at least uh, the original intention was to sort of serve as gatekeepers to the housing market. They would protect 
the housing market from taking unreasonable risk, and in particular, protect Fannie and Freddie from taking unreasonable risk. And so what we show in the paper is that these firms were really taking on a huge amount of risk during the boom years, especially in 2006 and 2007. And they were doing so in ways that exposed Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to a great deal of losses. So just be clear on one of the technical terms when you're saying first, they're first in line to take the losses. Right. That means if a particular borrower defaults, the, in, the private insurance company is going to, is going to pay before uh, Fannie or Freddie have to stand behind this loan. That's is right. That, That's that right? right. So the insurance okay. policy, it's a sort of a unique insurance policy. So the borrower is the one paying every month. Mm-hmm. They pay the premium. Right. If the borrower uh, fails to meet their mortgage obligations and the house goes through foreclosure and then there are losses, uh, then the question is who bears those losses? Right. And so these insurance policies protect uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, from the first uh, set of losses up to the coverage amount. And as of you the point out, by policy. definition, these would be, on balance, the more risky loans only because they're uh, loans where people are putting uh, the least amount down. I say least amount, less than 20%. So someone's putting 20% down, they're considered a, a better risk in the markets. Exactly. So anyone who's gone shopping for a mortgage knows that if you put down 20%, you can avoid. PMI or private mortgage insurance. And if you don't have a 20% down payment, then if you take out a loan through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, you're required to take on one of these policies. And in today's market, actually over 4 million households have some version of private mortgage insurance. So it's actually quite a common uh, insurance policy, Mm -hmm. but it's it's an insurance market that people don't don't know much about. Um, So you, you did give a brief explanation of moral hazard, but maybe you can give us a brief explanation of exactly what mortgage insurance is. Yeah. So mortgage insurance is an insurance contract that uh, the beneficiary receives a payout if a borrower goes through foreclosure and there's uh, losses uh, accrued to, uh, to the holder of this contract. And mortgage insurance comes in a few different flavors and a few different forms. The most common form and the version that we look at in the paper is a loan-by-loan ex-ante insurance contract where the mortgage insurers can review the paperwork just as the lender would review the paperwork and decide whether or not to grant an insurance policy on the loan. Now, these policies are generally issued if uh, a borrower doesn't put down 20%, um, and there's an equivalent insurance policy that the FHA requires as well, um, but that is a government-provided insurance policy. So as you looked at all these factors, what were the, what were the key findings? What, what did you discover? Yeah, so I think our findings are pretty striking. This is a market that's really understudied, and my co-author, Neil Buda at the Federal Reserve, uh, really did some fantastic data digging around the Fed. I mean, you can think about the data that we used in this paper as uh, collecting the equivalent of electronic dust. No one was really using this data. We had millions upon millions of records of uh, mortgage insurance applications. So the universe of all mortgage insurance applications over a 20-year period. And with that data, we could see just how much the firms relaxed their lending standards during the housing boom. So we were able to show a huge increase in, uh, in the number of applications that were approved and a sort of corresponding decrease in the number of applications that were denied leading to a dramatic increase in the overall volume of these policies in 2006 and 2007. And the timing of this is really interesting because this is exactly when the rest of the market is starting to say, hey, wait a minute, 
some of these markets are looking really frothy. We're thinking Las Vegas or Phoenix after prices have doubled in the last three years. Maybe this isn't the right time to be placing big bets on the housing market. And this is exactly when we show uh, that the private insurers uh, placed exactly these kind of large bets. Because they felt uh, if, if things went south that the government would bail them out. Is that basically correct? Well, I think it's it's hard to establish exactly why mm-hmm. they made the decisions that they made, and that's one of the things that we grapple with mm-hmm. in the paper. So first, we would try to just document a set of facts. I think right. getting at the why is, is harder. I think there may have been an expectation of a quid pro quo from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but mm-hmm. in terms of a direct bailout, that seems very unlikely. Mm-hmm. It seems like these were privately run firms, many of them publicly traded, so you could buy shares in these firms. You still can buy shares in these firms. Uh, they're making independent decisions on pricing and approval and denial decisions. Uh, so they really had quite a bit of freedom and a, quite a bit of control. And maybe they anticipated that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac would somehow bail them out, but we weren't able to find any direct evidence of that. So, but there were enough other, I think you'd call them misplaced incentives, where as an insurer, not the mortgage issuer, but the insurer of the mortgage is going to get a lot of their premiums up front. Um, and if there is a default, they don't pay that until later. That's exactly and so, right. And so um, maybe they're not, they weren't as worried about the later as they should have been since the money was pouring in. Exactly. So I think that's really where the moral hazard story, that mm-hmm. as we, what we call a moral hazard story, really comes into play. Mm-hmm. So they're able to issue new policies and collect those premiums up front. Uh, and sort of not worry as much about what's going to happen down the line. And in finance terms, this is sometimes called uh, gambling for resurrection, where you'll place big (laughs) bets uh, because you anticipate going out of business. We sort of show that they're already placing these bets well well before they may have anticipated insolvency. They're decreasing their denial rates Mm -hmm. in the early 2000s and in the mid-2000s, well before uh, there was any sort of Uh, expectation that the whole market would collapse. But by late 2006 and early 2007, it's a different story. The market is turning. Mm -hmm. Uh, Consensus forecasts are for a national downturn in house prices. And yet the mortgage insurers are uh, seem to be courting new business Mm -hmm. fairly aggressively as their main competitors Mm -hmm. have disappeared. So the main competitor to uh, mortgage insurance like this is to take out a second lien. Uh, And usually these second liens would be taken out at the time of origination. And this is a market that, for most of history, was just unavailable. No one would let you borrow for the down payment. The whole point was to save up for a down payment. And it's really only 2003 to 2006 that you see this market sort of uh, establish itself when there's a willingness of investors to bear this kind of risk. Actually, that was going to be my next question. Had there been any behavior like that in past housing markets and, you know, sort of like post-World War II, or was this really the first time for and, and and that's because the 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 reins were loosened up? Yeah, I mean, certainly nothing at the scale yeah. that we observed. I think mm-hmm. there were pockets of this kind of behavior mm-hmm. in the past. So usually you think of a second lien as someone who's maybe doing repairs on their house, right. Uh, they'll take out a home equity line of credit or a closed end second lien. It's usually not something that you would use for the down payment itself. Mm-hmm. And during this time period, you really see a, a huge increase in the number of loans, especially in those high-cost markets where prices are rising mm-hmm. sharply. 
uh, of using a second lien at the time of origination. And this is known as a piggyback lien because you right. put it on the back of the other first lien. And this is a market that the banks were very involved in and private securitization markets were involved in. And they seemed for at least a, a period of time to be willing to bear that really high risk, right? Again, they are now in the first loss mm -hmm. position. By mid to late 2006, they're no longer willing to write those kind of loans. And so you see the banks withdraw from that market and you see the private label securitization market withdraw from writing second liens. And so the folks who are looking for an affordable product who don't have a 20% down payment, especially in the expensive markets, they immediately turn to the private mortgage insurers. Now, if you thought that the private mortgage insurers were assessing risk correctly, right, was, right. there's two things that they would do. Number one, they would jack up prices immediately. They'd right. say, wow, we see the same risks that the right. other players in this market see. And the other thing is you would see a sharp increase in denials because mm -hmm. now all of the folks who had previously been applying for a second lien are coming to them, including mm -hmm. some of the riskiest folks. Mm -hmm. And instead, we see a decrease in denials, and we see no change in their pricing. So uh, are you the first one documenting all of this in your paper? I think, I think you make that point in your paper. So. Yeah, that's right. So this set of facts isn't out there elsewhere. This is what makes your paper unique, I think, in the field. So it's very interesting. So, so knowing all that now um, and documenting all that from this huge wealth of data that you have cited in the paper, um, what are the conclusions or what what, what – what do you draw from that? Yeah, so I think the big picture conclusion is that putting private capital in a first loss position does not always discipline markets. That, you know, d disciplining risk is actually more complicated than simply saying, well, as long as there's an investor on the other side, uh, everything will be fine. And that's mm -hmm. a lesson that we learned the hard way from, from the housing crisis. I think more, more broadly, there's a, a sort of deeper issue related to how we reform the, the U.S. mortgage finance mm -hmm. system. And this is a debate that's ongoing right now as mm -hmm. we have a new FHFA director and we have uh, a Treasury secretary who's planning on releasing a white paper reforming, proposing a reform of the mm -hmm. mortgage market in the coming months. It's now been over 10 years since Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were taken mm -hmm into conservatorship. And I think there's still some ambiguity about what role the private market should play mm -hmm. in the housing market. I think one of the things we're showing is that there should be a role for private capital in the mortgage finance system, but the incentives between those private players and any government entity needs to be very carefully explored to make sure that incentives are aligned to actually keep a close eye on the amount of risk that's percolating through the system. I I want to read a short quote from the paper, which I thought was really interesting. And uh, I'm actually starting halfway through the sentence, but it doesn't matter. It says, so the recent housing crisis has made it clear that PMI, meaning private mortgage insurance, is at its core insurance against a national housing downturn, a form of systematic risk. So this very thing that was supposed to be guarding against risk turns out to be spreading risk is. I think that's right. And yeah. so if you compare other t other forms of insurance, so say auto uh, auto insurance. So if you're an auto insurer, most car accidents are going to be idiosyncratic. Mm -hmm. There may be an accident on this highway this day and a different highway the next day. And so it's fairly easy to think about building a portfolio of drivers uh, and some may be riskier and some may be less risky. You charge them different rates based on their risk. And you assume, well, on any given day, every car in the country isn't going to get into a car accident. What I think the mortgage insurers 
didn't fully appreciate is that they're not in the auto insurance business. And in fact, that the prices throughout the entire country can fall at the same time. Uh, but the problem with that, that sort of the story of whether, whether they were just ill-informed sort of cuts against what they knew by 2006. By 2006, the other players in the market had already left. Mm-hmm. By 2006, Moody's was already predicting a national downturn in prices. And so it wasn't that they were completely clueless about the, the risks that they were facing. I think more generally, though, we need to spend a lot more time thinking about the, the overall risk exposure mm-hmm. and the risk exposure that taxpayers ended up bearing mm-hmm. in this space. Fannie and Freddie needed $187 billion of taxpayer funds to bail them out. And it looks like a lot of the, those funds went towards loans that had PMI attached in terms of the direct losses mm-hmm. that Fannie and, and Freddie suffered. So there were there was Dodd-Frank and other regulatory changes afterwards. Uh, how did they affect, uh, well, if you looked at this, what would happen today under the same circumstances given new regulations? Would it be any different? Yeah, so it's hard to say right now. There have been a few changes that have affected the private mortgage insurers. And the biggest one is Fannie and Freddie's private mortgage insurance eligibility requirements. Mm-hmm. And that's a mouthful. But what that's getting at is mm-hmm. if you want to be on the improved insurer list that Fannie and Freddie use, uh, you have to meet a certain set of capital requirements. Now, they've revised these twice since the the downturn. And the most recent one didn't seem to have much bite. So most mm-hmm. of the insurers said, we're already in, in compliance with mm-hmm. the capital requirements. And it's hard to know if that's just a function of the housing market doing well right now. Mm-hmm. And so I think we won't really know the answer to that until the, the housing market's tested again. If you wanted to do something where you really would know the answer, <laughs> what would you do? In other words, what would be a stronger way to, um, to reduce this risk without you know, hurting the housing market appreciably? Yeah. So there's a, there are a few things that, that I think would be really useful to do. So one would be to encourage the private mortgage insurers to make publicly available stress tests Mm -hmm. and really understand the risk that that they're bearing at the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not something that they've made public at at this point, at least to my knowledge. In other words, they're private companies. They don't have to reveal their financials. Is that... So they're private. They're, they're, the ones that are publicly traded reveal their financials to a degree, mm-hmm. uh, but they're not doing the same type of stress testing that's required under Dodd-Frank okay. for the large banks. Okay. I think there's a, a sort of broader set of, of questions to be had about how they're going to make decisions in, in a downturn. And so one of the real challenges of providing mortgage credit is how do you provide credit during a downturn when the market wants to freeze up? That's exactly when you need to have some sort of lender of last resort. In the, in the Great Recession, that was really the FHA. So the Federal Housing Authority stepped in, dramatically expanded the amount of business that they were doing. And they did that when the, the PMI firms were struggling severely under the weight of all the losses that they had taken on in 2006 and 2007. And so I think one of the challenges going forward is if we do reform Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, What's the relationship going to be to the private mortgage insurance market? Are we going to have the same sort of mandate in place? And is there a way to stabilize that system such that it provides liquidity through a downturn? You mentioned a couple of other possible, I don't know if fixes is the right word, but a couple of other things that might be done that could ameliorate the situation. Could you talk about those? Yeah. So I think the model that's currently in place is really subject to the set of the same set of concerns that we raise in our paper, which is that the mortgage insurers don't 
necessarily have incentives that are aligned with that of protecting Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac or protecting the taxpayer. And so I think one way to deal with this, rather than providing ex-ante insurance up front when a loan is being originated, which is the system that we're focused on here, is to provide insurance or an insurance-like policy on the securities that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac issue ex post. And that system has been known as a credit risk transfer system, or CRT. It's something that Fannie and Freddie have piloted in the wake of the crisis. I mean, is that kind of a derivative that we're talking exactly. about? Exactly. Yeah. It is a derivative contract that mm-hmm. sort of functions like an insurance contract. Okay. And it, it provides a payout if mm-hmm. a pool of loans doesn't uh, perform at a certain level. Um, that's been a very, it seems to be a very popular uh, product being purchased mm-hmm. by hedge, fund, hedge funds and other investors. Mm-hmm. But again, there's a question of countercyclical liquidity. In a downturn, are those hedge funds going to want to invest in the housing market in that way? Mm-hmm. Seems very unlikely that we would have necessarily the same players being interested to buy mm-hmm. that type of derivative at the going rates. And so I think one of the challenges for this, this other system, this sort of ex-post insurance as opposed to ex-ante, is how do you keep the players at the table even mm-hmm. when the market turns downward? So what would you say was the bottom line of of your research here? So I think the bottom line is that the systems that have been put in place thus far to protect taxpayers from losses in the mortgage market are insufficient because of the incentive misalignment between the different players Mm -hmm. in the mortgage and insurance markets. You have the lenders on one hand who don't have much of a stake in, uh, in the exposure of Fannie and Freddie to risk. You have the insurance companies that had misaligned incentives. They could generate policies very quickly uh, and not necessarily worry about the consequences as much as they should have. Uh, and you have the you have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who perceived this uh, government bailout on the horizon, mm-hmm. and in that case, were not very disciplined about their credit risk or their county counterparty risk. So they weren't monitoring the PMIs closely. And I think all of this made for a system that was much more vulnerable, as you said before, to systemic risk than people understood. And I think the big takeaway for us is that a lot of these tensions aren't resolved. Mm -hmm. And so as we look at some of the reform proposals on the table that have already come out and that will be coming out in coming months, I'll be very curious to see Mm -hmm. how they address these kinds of incentive uh, misalignments. It needs to to be a comprehensive solution of some kind. Exactly. It's a hard thing to reform in piecemeal. And I think at the end of it all, you have the FHA sort of serving as the backstop, which has exposed the government to a huge amount of potential losses. And so right now we have a nearly nationalized mortgage system Mm -hmm. between the FHA, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They're doing uh, well over the majority of all, uh, you know, sort of uh, exposure to to mortgage losses. And that doesn't seem like uh, it's very consistent with uh, sort of broader pushes to involve private capital, broader pushes to make the mortgage market act like a, like a market that responds to supply and demand in traditional ways. So bringing private capital into the system is tricky, and uh, that's what needs to be sorted out. So it sounds like you were surprised to find some of the things that you discovered while doing this paper. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It jumped off the page at us. I mean, uh-huh. we were stunned just looking at some of the basic mm-hmm. facts that we mm-hmm. show in the paper just to show the growth of mortgage insurance in 2007. And this is a time where there really wasn't ambiguity about where the housing market was going. I mean, the folks within the industry were talking about the market cooling 
And yet we see the, the mortgage insurance industry grow by 50% in 2007. It was the kind of thing where we had to double and triple check our numbers to make sure that we weren't doing something wrong. So, yeah, we were very surprised to see the volume of insurance policies being written in 2007 and that they were disproportionately being written in the riskiest markets like Phoenix and Las Vegas. I mean, now that the facts are so clear and so stark, is it also a little surprising that no one saw it until you guys picked it up? It's really surprising that the industry hasn't really had to address the choices that they made in those years. There hasn't really been a mea culpa. And it'll be interesting to see with some of the reform conversations going forward, they place sort of smaller or larger opportunities on mortgage insurers. There's a version where uh, Fannie and Freddie almost compete with the mortgage insurers for a certain type of business. Um, There are other versions of sort of um, uh, a sort of government utility model, which almost removes mortgage insurers from the equation. And so there may be some scenarios going forward where they're going to have to fight pretty hard to mm-hmm. keep a foothold in the mortgage finance system. And my hope is that they'll spend a bit more time addressing uh, why they made the choices that they did, mm-hmm. in part because then we'll have less ambiguity mm-hmm. in our research, but also because mm-hmm. I think for policymakers going forward, we'll have a much clearer sense of what exactly were the misaligned incentives and how can we fix them. Are you going to follow up this research? Yeah, so we are working on a follow-up project at the moment. So this research is focused on the boom years and why, trying to understand why mortgage insurance grew so dramatically in the ways that it did late in the housing boom. So first documenting that set of facts. In the downturn, I mentioned this before, this important role of the FHA to step in. And one of the reasons that the FHA needed to step in so dramatically is because the mortgage insurers were having such a difficult time and they instituted a range of policies to basically restrict their insurance policy writing in risky markets. So they sort of ignored things on the roller coaster ride up and then sharply tightened on the roller coaster ride down. And that seemed to have really differential impacts on markets. So we're trying to now look at the impact of mortgage insurance in the bust. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks very much for coming in and chatting with us about this. Uh, If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please join us at knowledge at wharton.upenn.edu. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.